0: Two weeks ago, I was helping Nathan move from South Salis- from Lakeland, Florida, to Salisbury, uh, Maryland, and we loaded a 26-foot U-Haul and drove it 17 hours to Salisbury, Maryland. Something I found noteworthy, it, it, since I was the one that had the commercial license, I got to drive the truck, and. There is a bridge when you go from the south coming up through Virginia going across to Maryland. There's the Chesapeake Bay. I don't know if you've heard of the Chesapeake Bay. I know you have. But it's big. It's a 17.6 mile bridge and tunnel that goes across the bay. It's a two lane and it's a 13 and a half foot ceiling and my truck is 12 foot and the semis that are coming at me are 12 foot so it was built in the 60s so they weren't like adding pull offs or anything. It's, that's, when, you, when you go in the tunnel, it's tight. It feels tight anyway, probably not as tight as it actually is but it feels tight. We, we, we drive out for probably, I don't know, it's, it's 17 miles and the tunnel, there's two tunnels and each of those tunnels are a mile long. So you drive out six or seven miles and then you go under the water and through the tunnel and then you come back up, drive another few miles, go back under the water and come back up and it's so the shipping can still cross. Those, those two tunnels are for the... It, it's called one of the seven modern-day marvels of the world. Uh, longest bridge tunnel system in the, in the world. So, we're going through the tunnel and Katie's dad, Steve, is riding with me that, at that particular time and we're talking and, and, and as we go under, he goes, I wonder what kind of force the water that's pushing against this tunnel. (laughs) And he says, I hope we don't have to turn on our windshield wipers. (laughs) And I said, Steve, I'd rather really not think about that at this point. There's really not a lot we can do about it. So I looked it up afterwards and I was just glad that that everything went fine. (laughs) I guess for the last 60 years, that everything's been fine, so. So that was some excitement for us. But it reminded me that a lot of times we don't want to think about things. A lot of times we just want to, let's just get it done. Let's just go through it. Let's not think about it. Saul, he was the king of Israel, and Israel was at war with the Philistines. Jonathan, Saul's son, had led an army that attacked the Philistines and they destroyed a garrison of Philistine soldiers. Of course, that only served to anger the Philistines even more than they had already and they had returned to avenge the attack from Jonathan. They're mad. And with a mighty force, they invaded the land of Israel. The scripture says that the Philistine force was made up of 30,000 chariots, 6,000 cavalry, and then infantry soldiers that were as numerous as the sands of the seashore. So they're facing a pretty big army. Nothing could stand before them. All that Saul could do was fight a series of delaying actions and hope that the Philistines would eventually give up and go home but that just did not happen. After a series of unsuccessful attempts to drive away the Philistines, Saul's army is now down to 600 men against the mighty power of the Philistine army. It's no surprise that we see King Saul hiding in the farthest place that he could find to get away from the enemy. He was camped out probably in a fortified position on the opposite side of the kingdom from where the Philistines were. Saul had taken matters into his own hands doing what he thought was necessary. You see, he knew he needed an answer from God. Unsurmountable odds. And even though Samuel had said, Samuel the prophet had said that he would be in Gilgal in seven days, Saul just couldn't wait that long. So he did what most of us would do in that situation, where we think that God is just taking a little too long to answer our need. Saul decided to try to force God to give him the answers that he needed. So Saul knew that God would require a sacrifice of worship, So Saul assumed the position of the priest of Israel and made a burnt offering unto the Lord. He thought that he had it all figured out. He could wait no longer, he had to have an answer right now. Ever been there? Hang on. Wait a little longer. Don't get ahead of God. No sooner had the burnt sacrifice been offered up, and here comes Samuel walking into the camp to discover Saul had already sinned against God. Now Saul's disobedience and disregard for God's law and his impatience and mistrust of God of Israel would be his downfall. Samuel relayed God's message to Saul, Your kingdom is coming to an end. And your throne will no longer be and it will no longer be yours, it will belong to another person. God had found a man after his own heart, a man called David. 1 Samuel chapter 13 tells us that the Philistines sent three companies of soldiers. Each group of soldiers went in a different direction and invaded the towns and villages of the Israelites, but not to kill them, but to to capture and stop the work of every blacksmith in Israel. Every blacksmith in Israel. I was coming to church this morning, and right in the middle of the road was a horseshoe with nails sticking up. Some horse threw his shoe. A blacksmith wouldn't have made that shoe. So, why would they do such a thing to stop the manufacturing and distribution of weapons of war, especially swords. If they could stop the making of swords, they've got Saul in a bind. Without swords and spears, the army of Israel would be no threat to the Philistines. And just on a side note, why kill them when we can use them as slaves once we capture their their country. Their tactics were so effective that the Bible says that only King Saul and his son Jonathan had a sword. In the whole camp of Israel, two swords. The one King Saul had and the one Jonathan had. When you consider the fact that the Philistines had 30,000 chariots, which would have been equivalent to in our day today and Israel had only two swords or which we would say we have two rifles in the whole nation of the United States. There just wasn't much chance for King Saul to defeat the Philistines. If you can't run from your enemy and they take everything and you don't have the power to stop him, what else can you do but hide out somewhere? Saul was hiding. That's just what Saul was doing. He was camped out under the shade of a pomegranate tree, holding the only sword in the army, except for Jonathan's, surrounded by 600 unarmed soldiers. Every one of them was terrified of what would happen next. I mean, you have no weapon. The the army is Ginormous. There was no faith in the Almighty God in that camp. There was no trust in the miracle working power of God. Saul even presumed to make burnt sacrifices when only the prophet or the priests of Israel were allowed to do so according to the law of Moses. I want to tell you that in this scenario, King Saul, who was supposed to be God's chosen man for that hour, is hiding out in fear. Does it remind us of the modern corporate church today? Stick with me on this thought. They throw everything into the love bucket. They forget about what in Romans 1 is called an abomination. They justify their actions and expect the church to follow suit. In many cases, the church has... We look around and we don't see any real spiritual warfare being won. We are just hiding out. The modern church is powerless to resist the devil, so he just walks right into the church, takes away the desire to pray, seals their knowledge of the word of God. He then leaves them with no weapons to fight spiritual warfare because our swords have been removed. I don't believe the church is afraid to stand up to the devil but without any weapons we just find a place to play church now I'm not talking I'm I'm talking about the worldwide Protestant churches I I want you to, to understand me I'm not talking about bashing Mount Hope here I'm not but sometimes a little self examination is a good thing where are we at are we in the word are we Studying the word of God. That is our sword. That is our weapon. So are we picking it up? Let's, let's, let's think about that. Saul's army appeared to be fighting a fighting force, but there was no fight in them. They tried to act the part of soldiers, but they were unarmed and powerless. That's just the way most of the churches are today. The church is nothing more than a toothless tiger appearing to be soldiers but with no weapon. We are busy building programs and not faith. We are busy teaching seminars and not the truth of God's word. We are busy reading the works of church leaders but not reading the Bible and learning its precepts. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with reading other things. Church leaders have great thoughts But so does God. So does God. He has great thoughts. His word teaches us everything we need to know. We are busy being busy, but we aren't doing much to defeat the devil. Have you ever known someone who is busy being busy? And often for no really good reason? I know many people who feel like They have to be busy doing something. They have hobbies or special work projects or a variety of other things. And there's nothing wrong with being busy, but if you're being busy just to be busy, a lot of things in busyness gets put on the back burner. Things that are usually the most important things. Unfortunately, the things that get left out are things like Prayer and reading of the Bible, and obviously that's not always, but it's often the things that get left out. second Corinthians 10:4 the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they are divine. they have divine power to demolish strongholds. What are those weapons? Where are those weapons now the weapons are our shield of faith in God. It's knowledge and wisdom on how to resist the devil using the Word of God, which is our only sword. The preparation of the gospel of peace, that is, our combat boots, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the ammo belt filled with truth, meaning the presence of the truth, as well as the knowledge of the truth. Prayer is effectual and fervently prayed to our commander-in-chief. The truth is the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. How many in the church don't have on their armor? How many have laid down their sword, taken off their helmet, cast aside the truth, taken off their running shoes and decided to just go with the flow with the world? No, like I said, this is the corporate church I'm talking about, but a little self-examination is good for us. God didn't turn His back on Israel that day and just allowed them to be utterly destroyed by the enemy. There's a key. God always has a few good, faithful men who will stay true, even when the whole army of God is cowering in fear and defeat. God looks for that one man, that one woman, that young person who will stand up and be counted in spite of it all. Count on me, Lord. Count on me. God is looking for that one person who will still trust Him. He's looking for that one person who will hold on to the Word of God and not be afraid to use it. He is looking for that one person who will say, Here I am. Send me, use me, mold me, make me after your own will, not my will. First Samuel 14, one through six, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side but he did not tell his father i want to tell you why i like this passage this uh, i'm going to read more but i love the part about the armor bearer i love the armor bearer's story he's always got the leader's back i kind of feel like i'm an armor bearer of sorts Never have been the senior pastor, but always the associate to the senior pastor. And kind of having his back. And kind of being... And I've done that in a lot of other ministries as well. And I like the story of the armor bearer because I kind of relate to him. I kind of feel like if I was with Jonathan, I'd be his armor bearer. Sorry. Let's go on. I'm just telling you why I like it. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, which we've already talked about, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother Ahitab, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozaz and the other was Sinah. One cliff stood to the north toward the Michmash, toward Michmash, and the other toward the south toward Giba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Wow, I like that. So he's going to go over, he's put out a fleece and said, Lord, if they say this, I know you've given them to us. And we'll climb up there and we'll just kick some tail. And they did. God said... They did exactly what what Jonathan had asked. And they climb up there. Two guys. I'm, I'm getting off script. I better stay closer. Here was a man of faith. At last, Jonathan, God's man of faith and power for the hour. He wasn't a king, but he was a prince. The son of the king. And he was the prince of God with, with God as well. Jonathan was a man but torn between his allegiances. On one side, he was the son of King Saul, and he loved his father and wanted to be on his side. But on the other side, Jonathan was a man of faith and principles. He hated compromise, and so he continued to love David, even when Saul was trying to kill David. David and Jonathan were close. He tried to keep peace, but it was a hard thing to do. In serving the Lord, and by his faithfulness to God's will, in choosing David, Jonathan's name has forever been mentioned with reverence, honor, and integrity. Out of all the 600 men in the camp of Israel, only two names really stand out from the crowd. King Saul for his disobedience, and Jonathan for his faithfulness. Jonathan secretly formulated a plan with his armor-bearer to do what he could to defeat the Philistines. Nothing had changed of the outward appearance, the impossible odds, the circumstances around the invasion. In fact, it appeared that the Philistines were planning one final thrust into the army of Israel to finish it once and for all. And by all rights, it should have happened that way. The outward appearance. It seemed that there was no hope for victory in Israel, and all would be lost. The soldier of Israel and Saul would either be killed or made slaves for the rest of their life. And if that's not bad enough, all of Israel would become part of the land of the Philistines. I wonder if that's what the devil has in store for the modern church. Does he think that he has us backed into a corner? When he looks at Christians who have no real commitment to Christ, and when he sees the Bible gathering dust on the table, when he sees the people of God never seeking the face of God, when he sees us making church into a club, I wonder what he thinks. I wonder if he's thinking, the world is finally mine. Well, it's, the world has always been his. He thinks he've won. Nobody can stop him now. I believe that Satan is working overdrive right now because he believes that he's almost won. And yes, he is deceived. He is deceived. I don't want to be numbered with Saul and his 600 men waiting for the enemy just to walk in and destroy them. I want to be a Jonathan, or at least like Jonathan's armor bearer. Jonathan had the faith in God. He didn't have anything but one sword. He had faith in God and one sword. The armor bearer had no weapon except for his trust in God, his love for Jonathan, and his loyalty to Jonathan's leadership. I have to admire that armor bearer. I pray for God to give us a few more armor-bearers. There's no telling what God can do with a church filled with armor-bearers. These folks will go wherever God leads, do whatever God says, and trust their leadership to go forth and fight without even a sword. That's what I call loyalty, faith, and trust. Jonathan had faith to believe God for a miracle. It does not make a lot of people, it does not take a lot of people to accomplish the work of the Lord. It just takes a few good faithful people who will believe God, trust in God, and go forth with hope in their lives and in their hearts. God will do the rest. He will fight the battles just like He did for Jonathan. Jonathan and his armor bearer walked into the enemy's camp waited for God to give them the sign, and then attacked. Two men surrounded by insurmountable odds, but God with them on their side. The armor bearer soon got a sword from the defeated enemy. Together, Jonathan and the armor bearer and Almighty God routed the Philistines. It remains to be seen what God Will do with only one man, one woman, or one young person who will be fully dedicated and commit their lives to the Lord without compromise. Saul heard of the fight going on, but when he arrived, the battle had already been won. The Philistines had turned on one another, and then they began to run for their lives. Can you picture that? Two guys go up the hill, pick a fight with God on their side, and the next thing you know, there's chaos in the camp of the Philistines. They're killing each other because they don't know where it's all coming from. They turn around and whack one of their other guys. It's just crazy. But God had changed their perception, and they were fighting each other because of two guys' faithfulness. He was quick to claim victory. Saul was quick to claim victory and quick to try to appear so righteous. But in the haste, in his haste, he almost caused Jonathan his own death. But God knew Jonathan was faithful. He knew who deserved the best that God could give. And God protected Jonathan and blessed him. We need a few more Jonathans. We need a few more armor bearers. We need a few faithful people who will stand up and be counted, letting God fight through them. One of my favorite armor bearers of all time is Samwise Gamshi in the movie The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Now, I know this is a fictional character, but from a very old testament type of allegory that Tolkien wrote, uh, he also wrote Pilgrim's Progress, we find these two guys, Frodo and Sam. And Frodo and Sam are at their wits. Frodo's at his wits' end. It's about, he's about ready to throw in the towel. And I think many of us feel the same way at certain times in life when all we have is and all we see is evil surrounding us. Seeming to encompass everywhere we're at. Here's their conversation. Frodo says, I can't do this, Sam. Sam says, I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger, they were, and some, they were and sometimes you don't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing. This shadow, even darkness must pass. A new day will come and when the sun shines, it will shine out clearer there were the stories that stayed with you. They meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in these stories had lots of chances of turning back. Only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. Frodo asked the question, What are we holding on to, Sam? that there is some good in this world Mr. Frodo and it's worth fighting for. That's the end of their remarks at least for that movie but it speaks to us today. There is still good in this world and it's worth fighting for. You know I believe this is still a good world but we can't be soldiers of the cross without using the sword of truth And that's our Bible. For the Israelites, to the outward appearance, it seemed that there was no hope for victory. And Israel was lost. But that was not the end of the story. When all we see is defeat, that's the perfect time for God to bring glory to himself and the church can stand victorious. Bring glory to himself. God can bring glory to himself through what's going on in our world today. But he needs to find us faithful. He needs to find us faithful. Will you stand with me? Lord, I just pray that you would find us faithful as we Look at our world today. We can sometimes feel hopeless in it. But Lord, you can be glorified when you can only find a couple that will stand faithful to you. Help us to, Lord, be faithful. Help Mount Hope to be faithful. Help our church worldwide to catch fire and become faithful to you. But we have seen good things happen. We also have seen many things go crazy. And we just don't understand it. But Lord, you can turn it around and be glorified through it. And we just pray for revival in our nation. We just pray, Lord, that you would draw us unto yourself and help our mouths to speak truth and a love that... <laughs> is so real that those looking on will want some of it. We'll want to know you. We'll want to know why. Why can we act so different in such a chaotic place? It's because of you. You have the answers. And will you be glorified in it? I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to see glory brought to you. I believe there's good in this world and it's worth fighting for because you laid down your life for each and every one of us and if you see value, then we see value too. Just pray that you would help us as we go into our world, Lord, that you would guide and direct. Use our lips to speak truth and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you folks.